evangelistically active churches, and we need lots of them. We need contagious churches. I believe in the importance of contagious churches for two reasons. First, I know from experience how hard it is to do effective evangelism outside the context of a contagious church. Second, I know the advantages and the joy of doing evangelism in tandem with a contagious church. There's a synergistic one-two punch when individual contagious Christians do relational evangelism in partnership with a well-led contagious church that prioritizes outreach. So what about your church? You know, I don't care what brand your church is, what flavor it is, what color it is, how old it is, or what neighborhood it's in, or even how financially solvent it is. I just love the power and potential of contagious churches that hold to the message of Christ and take whatever risks are needed to reach lost people. By its very nature and purpose, the church ought to be a contagious place that is infecting more and more outsiders with the Christian faith. In fact, there ought to be an epidemic of people trusting in Christ. Why isn't that happening more than it is? A major part of the problem is that many churches have been around so long that they've lost sight of the primary purposes for which they were created in the first place. Simply asking members the question, what are we trying to do, will often evoke blank stares or puzzled looks that seem to say, we're not trying to do anything, we're a church for goodness sakes. On the other end of the spectrum, some people will respond with an entire laundry list. Oh, we're here to fulfill God's plan, you know, to teach people and build up the body of Christ and to worship and grow and teach young people about God and help needy people in the community and to send missionaries overseas. Well, these aren't bad goals, but they're ordered by a stream of consciousness, not by a clear sense of mission or priority. And you may have noticed evangelism usually falls to the bottom of the list, if it's on the list at all. Some churches even try to justify their lack of activity in the area of evangelism by pointing to other areas of strength. There's nothing wrong with churches developing strengths in particular areas. Often this is a result of God's specific calling and gifting of individual leaders and congregations. But when these strengths are developed to the exclusion of other basic aspects of what a biblically functioning church is supposed to be like, then there's a problem. What about your church or ministry? Is your mission clear? Is evangelism at the center of it? And is that mission concise and memorable? Peter Drucker says that if you can't print your mission statement on the back of a t-shirt, then it's too long. Is it the active criterion by which you make decisions about where your ministry will invest its time, energy, and money? Can you articulate it right now? We must not fool ourselves. Churches will never become contagious by chance. Contagious churches result when leaders know what they're trying to build and who they're trying to reach and then work tirelessly and prayerfully to fulfill their objectives. If your mission isn't clear, or if it isn't clearly evangelistic, I'd strongly urge you and your fellow church leaders to draft one that is and then begin to communicate it and to live by it. Chapter 2, Evangelistic Values in a Secular World Jesus presents us with two principles in Luke 14 that apply to our task of building a contagious church. First, we need to be completely sold out to the mission to which God has called us. We must keep our hands open and our hearts warm before Him, willingly do whatever He asks in order to build and expand His church. Second, we need to get an accurate understanding of the task at hand. We must have a clear vision of what it's going to take to fulfill the assignment God has given us. For those of us who have our sights set on reaching secular people in our increasingly post-Christian society, we must step back and figure out what our own mission field's cultural landscape looks like. We need to know what we're up against. 
we also need to determine what values will have to be reinforced in ourselves and in the people around us so that we can effectively embark on this evangelistic adventure. There are seven essential values that will undergird all of our outreach efforts. These values are vitally important and they need to be owned and supported by the broad leadership of a church before initiating new outreach ministries and events. So we'll start with values and then in the next chapter we'll look at how those values can be expressed through a practical step-by-step -step evangelistic strategy. Value number one, people matter to God. Now stay with me here. I know you're tempted to say, I've got this one down, let's skip to the more advanced principles. But hear me, this belief is the hardest one to fully absorb into our value system. It's also the most difficult value to build into those people around us. We agree with it, but we don't own it. We slot it into our minds right next to other biblical truths like David was king, or Moses parted the Red Sea, or even Ruth was a Moabite. We nod our heads in intellectual approval and then move on to other topics. So please listen carefully, for it has life and death implications. What we do with every other concept in this book will directly depend on the degree to which we own and apply this first value. People matter to God. I hope you believe this to the very core of your being. Value number two, people are spiritually lost. Contrary to the prevailing belief that I'm okay and you're okay, the Bible gives us a very different picture, and it is not a pretty one. But it is one we'd better understand and deal with if we're serious about our call to build outwardly focused, contagious churches. Applying this passage at a personal level, it means that our friends at work, and in the neighborhood, and even in our families, are not okay simply because they do loving things and perhaps engage in sincere religious activities. We have to be crystal clear on this. No matter how good people are, if they don't know Christ as their forgiver and leader, they're headed for a Christless eternity. The Bible is unwaveringly consistent on this. Value number three, people need Christ. Here again, modern thinking militates against clear biblical teaching. Add to that challenge the fact that in some corners of Christendom, belief that Christ is the only way to God is being systematically undermined. An insidious form of religious pluralism is seeping into the church, which says that there really might be multiple paths to God. Against these kinds of backdrops, Jesus said boldly in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like it or not, we have an unpopular message, and we've been commissioned to present it boldly. But while it may be unpopular, it certainly is good news to people who are lost and headed for a Christless eternity. Value number four, people need answers. Today people require more than merely to have the gospel declared to them. They also need to have it defined and defended. They don't merely need to decide whether to follow Christ. They need to know who Christ is and what it means to follow him. As soon as the topic of faith comes up, many people have a list of doubts and concerns pop into their minds. They'll think things like, how can I be sure God even exists? If he does exist, how could I know what he's like? There are so many religions, how can I have confidence any of them is really true? With all the bad examples out there, why should I trust any religious teacher or organization? If God really cares about us, why would he let us go through so many awful things? These and similar questions form what I call intellectual roadblocks that prevent persons from taking steps forward in their spiritual journey. If we want to help people move toward Christ, we're going to have to proactively address their issues and show that the Christian faith is built on a foundation of truth 
and can be trusted wholeheartedly. As Paul boldly put it in his second letter to the Corinthians, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Value number five, people need community. Have you noticed a common thread in many of the popular television sitcoms of recent years? Whether it be Cheers, Friends, Frasier, Home Improvement, or Seinfeld, the glue that holds these stories together is the interaction between a tight-knit circle of friends. A major attraction to these shows, in addition to the humor, is the feeling that there is some level of genuine acceptance and connectedness. I believe we crave the kind of deep relational connection that can only be found in the Church of Jesus Christ. Many of the people we're trying to reach, especially those from the younger generations, come from broken homes. They have felt the pain of living in a fragmented family. They know what it feels like to be isolated and alone. They long for deeper community of some kind. They're attracted to whatever source seems to be able to give it, even in the absence of truth. I think this explains why so many of the cults and sects and world religions are growing so quickly. Often their teachings are illogical and even outlandish, but they offer a sense of family and community that people desperately desire. Consequently, many people put their minds on pause for the sake of seeing their relational needs met. We were designed by God to be in community with each other. The question for us is, how can we expose outsiders to genuine biblical fellowship, the community of oneness that Christ commissioned and prayed for in John 17? Value number six, people need cultural relevance. When we send missionaries to a foreign land, they must first do language and culture studies so that they'll be able to clearly communicate Christ to the people they're hoping to reach. The job of the missionary is to communicate the complete gospel message without altering it or compromising it in any way in the context of the culture he or she has been called to reach. The missiologist's term for this is contextualization. The amount of study and effort required to prepare a person for this task can be enormous. While it's obvious we need to prepare a foreign missionary in this way, we often overlook the fact that we have to do the same kind of work if we're going to be effective right here at home. We wrongly assume that because we grew up here, because we know these people as neighbors and friends, and because we speak the same language and wear the same clothing and drive the same cars, then there must not be any real distance or barrier between us and them. And in virtually every case, we're dead wrong. We overlook the fact that our friends and neighbors live in a culture that is growing more secular and less Christian. We forget that they don't know what we know, value what we value, or trust what we trust. We also fail to realize that our church world is also a culture unto itself, and that we have tended to become increasingly insular. There's something called the cultural chasm, which consists of the barriers that keep a secular person from hearing and understanding our message. Because of it, we may have to adapt our language, choice of illustrations, style of dress, music, or even worship habits without ever compromising the biblical message. Many churches, ours included, have found that in reaching a skeptical audience, it's best to give them a bit of distance by letting them be anonymous and not forcing newcomers to stand up or otherwise identify themselves. We often reassure those thinking about visiting our church that they won't be asked to sing anything, sign anything, say anything, or give anything. This takes the pressure off and lets them know that they can advance at their own pace. We then do all we can to keep that pace healthy and moving in the right direction. Once we understand that there is a cultural chasm that separates us from the people we're trying to reach, the question becomes simple. Who is going to move? 
Are we going to force people to take the leap in our direction or follow the example of Jesus and Paul by stretching out across the cultural chasm in order to get up close to people and help them move toward Christ? Value number seven, people need time. Secular men and women who are far from Christ don't generally come to Christ in one fell swoop. They don't hear one good sermon or read one solid Christian book or have one strategic spiritual conversation or go to one knockout seeker event and then decide on the spot to repent of their sins and turn over their lives to Christ. Saul to Paul Damascus Road conversions are the exception, not the rule. When they happen, we call them miracles and celebrate. But most of the people we're trying to reach need more time. Many people doubt the existence of God, or, if they believe He exists, they lack the confidence in His power and wisdom. People with these kinds of issues need extra time to think about spiritual truth claims. They need some space as they put the puzzle pieces together to see if the rational side of Christian teachings really makes sense, and as they weigh out the costs and benefits of actually following Christ. In short, we must give people the chance to move ahead at their own pace. Inherent in all of this is the fact that for most people today, movement toward Christ will be a process. Contrast this to earlier forms of evangelism, which were largely designed to be an event that reminded semi-religious people of what they already knew and then challenged them to commit to it right there on the spot. Rather, the process approach deepens the trust and understanding of secular people and, along the way, urges them to put their faith in Christ. Chapter 3, A Strategy for Reaching Secular People One overseas church championed many of the values we discussed in Chapter 2. It was a great church with godly leadership, vibrant worship, solid biblical teaching, strong discipleship programs, and an authentic passion for reaching lost people. In fact, during the summer months, as many as 40% of its members spent time in various forms of direct evangelism. And in spite of being a ministry of just a few hundred members, they even had a full-time evangelist working tirelessly for them, and each year they would bring in several American seminary students to assist them in their outreach efforts. One summer, my wife Heidi and I had the privilege of serving with one of those groups. It was exciting to be part of a committed church that made it such a high priority to reach lost people. We were inspired by their zeal and emboldened by their efforts to courageously meet people in the neighborhoods and lead them to Christ. But there was a problem. Few people were actually coming to faith. In fact, the summer we were there, I only know of one person who clearly made a commitment to Christ through our weeks of outreach efforts. What about the hundreds of people we talked to in the neighborhood and on the streets? What happened to them? We hope some of them took to heart what they heard. We hope, but we don't know.